0: Today on Ag News Daily. We'll find uh, a farming family or um, uh, a farmer who is looking to sell either their entire farm or a stake of their farm.
1: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here from the Ag News Daily podcast, joined by Delaney Howell. Delaney, how you doing today?
2: I'm pretty good, Mike. If you hear any sort of animal noises in the background, I've got my dog on my lap. He's been kind of needy since I've been home for quarantine.
1: Oh, all right. I got you. I got you. That's great. So you got your pup. Good hurt, I suppose.
2: He likes to take naps and he snores really loud. So sometimes I feel like you can hear it in the background of the podcast. And I probably should have given like a, a disclaimer about that earlier on.
1: I feel like your pup is my spirit animal, Delaney mm,
2: Yes, he's mine too.
1: Well, I tell you what, getting off the subject of dogs onto the subject of, well, I'm going to start with commodity market news, broad spectrum stuff. If any of you were looking to read news today about the agricultural commodities, you had to dig pretty hard because... All of the headlines and all of the major news sources were devoted to oil. The unprecedented event that happened yesterday with oil closing negative $37 per barrel um, is really driving a lot of headlines and it's scaring a lot of folks in the markets. It is an additional piece of uncertainty. It scared the stock market and We'll notice when we get down to the market segment here before our Tech Tuesday interview, it definitely scared the corn market down to new contract lows and I believe, every contract. So it is troubling. And I've reached out to a few people uh, to help kind of explain what's happening in the oil market and how producers could take advantage of it to lock in prices. And as soon as I get a response back, Delaney, we're going to get some uh, some oil pros on.
2: That'll be great. I don't know that we've had an oil pro on the podcast before.
1: I don't think we have. That's why I thought it might be a good topic to cover with somebody who really knows their mm, stuff.
2: Yes, I agree. And you're right, Mike. There are certainly certainly quite a bit of commodity-related news, definitely focused quite a bit on oil. But I also want to take a look here at the meat commodity industries as well. We've received word that another, well, I don't even know how many processing facilities we're up to now that are shut down, but another one in Worthington, Minnesota, which is a JBS facility, has shut down, and they found about 26 workers had contracted COVID-19, but this facility by itself accounts for about 4% of the U.S. pork supply, plus the Smithfield facility, which is about 5%. I mean, we're definitely getting up there in facilities closing down. We've got I don't know how many different beef and pork facilities now on the list that are closing their doors. However, the Tyson facility in my hometown, Columbus Junction, said that they are planning to reopen at the beginning of next week.
1: Oh, okay. Well, that's good news. They got the place clean. They got the workers sorted out. Yes. got a feeling JBS at Worthington and probably Smithfield there in Sioux Falls are going to take the same approach. The Worthington plant, just like Sioux Falls, is closed indefinitely. So, I mean, this thing could be prolonged. And Delaney, you know, we talk a lot about the closed plants, but I was speaking with a friend of mine who uh, markets pork through a processor that has not been affected. Uh, Well, not noticeably, like they haven't had to shut any plants down. But their line speeds have slowed because workers are calling in sick. Right. And so even if the plant is still open, it's not typically running at full capacity or the capacity it would like to be running at due to absenteeism in the workplace. So this is going to potentially cause some backup. And when we get down to the cattle markets, we'll see that they are pricing in the potential for fatter carcasses and uh, backups in the supply chain. In fact, there was another beef plant in Alberta, Canada. Uh, I believe it's Mm -hmm. a Cargill plant that announced they were closing uh, indefinitely as well. So yeah, everybody's getting hit with this thing.
2: Yeah, and when you look at cattle alone, there were some estimates put out by the NCBA as well as Cattle Facts looking at slaughter for the month of April. And as of April 17th, live cattle slaughter was at 180,000 head below where Cattle Facts projections were for the month of April. So we're definitely seeing a slowdown on the processing side as well. Will this mean that consumers won't be able to have beef? And poultry or pork in their grocery stores, I think, is yet to be seen, but it definitely threatens the supply chain.
1: Right. And it's probably going to lead to or continue to point to higher prices on the retail side. And who knows what that's going to do for demand long term. So it is a very uncertain picture. And. Yeah, it's very frustrating, I think, for a lot of meat producers. I've got some other meat news, Delaney, if I can take us across Mm -hmm. the Pacific. Um, China still struggling with African swine fever. There was a report out by some state entity, I lost the article, that they are anticipating their pork prices to peak around September as African swine fever really starts to, uh, or the hogs born during the outbreak, you know, they realize the least of them. Um, and so China, to mitigate this, is going to auction 10,000 tons of frozen pork from its reserves on April 23rd. So ooh, Thursday. No, Friday.
2: Today's is the is 21st, it? if that helps.
1: But what is today?
2: Today's the 21st. The
1: I know, but what day of the week is it? That's the
2: question. Oh, today is Tuesday. It's Tech Tuesday here on it the is. Ag News Daily Podcast.
1: Tech Tuesday. So whenever the 23rd comes around, the (laughs) Chinese are going to auction 10,000 tons of frozen pork. Um, And, you know, we got to keep in mind, they've already released 280,000 tons of pork from their state reserves. And eventually, the Chinese government is going to want to refill those reserves. And so looking at pork prices down where they're at here in this country, if China really wants to fulfill their $40 billion pledge, that might be might make a lot of sense for them. But we'll see.
2: Ag News Daily, where you're always on top of the news and dates, aren't you, Mike?
1: 100%. 100%. I am basically a human computer.
2: Oh, man. Well, speaking of China, I saw this article come across, actually, my Facebook this morning, Reported by a news outlet in Missouri, they are the first state to file a lawsuit against the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party, and other officials claiming that China has suppressed information, arrested whistleblowers, and denied the contagious nature of the COVID-19 pandemic. I thought that was interesting, not really ag-related per se, uh, but I could see a lot of other states following suit and or, you know... um. Individual citizens filing suits against the state, so I don't know I think this is really just the first of many to come
1: yeah, I think you're exactly right. I saw a fantastic article in fact, I might even still have it pulled up. I know a lot of our listeners are well, I know a lot of people period are getting kind of cooped up with uh, the quarantine and everything and you know they're wondering what are we going to do about it and fee the foundation for Economic education wrote a an article about how the question that will be coming next is, will states owe businesses just compensation for forced closures? Mm. Will it do a taking under the Constitution? And, you know, there's some mixed thoughts on it. Of course, that's why it's going to go to court. But, yeah, you're exactly right, Delaney. Lawsuits will be coming fast and furious here before too long.
2: And we've seen the administration, what I'm going to say, kind of slap a band on that concern for now with some of the Paycheck Protection Program and other stimulus packages and as we've been closely watching it appears that the senate and house could vote on essentially another addition to that 450 billion dollars in ppp programs so the senate is expected to address that or vote on it as early as today And the House is expected to follow suit later this week. But the extension that they're looking at is about a $250 billion replenishment into those payroll subsidies for smaller businesses. As a frame of reference, I read this morning that that program, that $350 billion original money that was ran out last week, provided about $4.5 billion to the ag sector alone. So I don't know if I, expected that number to be higher or smaller, but I think some of the concern was that for a long time or for at least, you know, a week or so, we didn't really know if agriculture people were eligible to receive it. So I'm thinking if they do replenish it, there will be hopefully more people that work Mm -hmm. in agriculture that will be able to have access to some of those funds.
1: Yeah, I've got a feeling you're exactly right about that, Delaney. I think lenders and CPAs and probably lawyers have gotten up to speed on it now and they'll be a lot more quick to act when, if this thing gets replenished. I agree. Well, I tell you what, I'm all out of news. Delaney, should we jump into the markets or do you have any more stories for us?
2: I have just two quick stories that lead us really nicely into the markets. The first of which is turning our attention to Russia. They have announced that they will suspend Mm -hmm. grain exports until July 1st. Once their export quota is exhausted, which is currently expected to happen in mid-May. So they've fully banned, or the last time they fully banned wheat exports was in 2010 after they had pretty heavy drought and a rocking global market. So they've decided to do that again for this year. The other piece of news I have, Mike, is the crop progress report. Oh, gosh darn it.
1: Good call, Belenie.
2: So we saw corn planting progress was up 3% from a week prior, but lacked the five-year average, which was about 9%. U.S. farmers have planted about 2% of their intended soybean crop as of Sunday, which is in line with the estimates pulled from a recent Reuters poll. We saw USDA rated 57% of the winter wheat crop in good to excellent conditions, which was a drop from the week prior at 62%. Uh, But overall, it seems a little behind where we expected to be for this time of year.
1: And I've got to imagine for the trade, not a huge surprise. We are still wet across many parts of the country. So we are going to see a slowdown. We certainly are. All right. Well, let's jump into the markets. You know, it's so bizarre to have crop progress reports coming out and then not even really talk about them when it comes Mm -hmm. to market prices. But today, really, the story was crude oil and what that means for funds flowing in and out of the commodity markets and what it means for ethanol. We've jumped into the corn market. We saw corn contracts May, July and December all down a nickel. May off a nickel at 309 and a quarter, the December off a nickel at 332 even. Soybeans were actually higher on the day. The May contract was up four and a quarter at 830 and 3 quarters. November new crop up two and a quarter to close at 848 even. In the wheat pit, Chicago May wheat up, excuse me, down 2 cents at 546 and 3 quarters. The December contract down three and a quarter to close the day 555 and three quarters. Looking over at livestock we've got red on the screen in the cattle market. This is that continue concern that cattle are going to start to back up and carcass weights are going to climb. The June live cattle contract down $1.025 at $84.07.50. The August down $1.60 at $88.50. Looking at feeder cattle, the May contract was down 52 dollars half at 116.75. The August down 75 cents, closed the day at $126.90. We've got trade in a little bit of trade in the green in the lean hog contracts. The May was actually up three dollars sixty-seven and a half cents at forty-four twenty-seven fifty. That is limit up under the new limits for lean hogs. The June contract was up $1.85 at 48 at forty-eight ten. Jumping over to dairy, dairy was weak on the day. The April was down four cents at thirteen thirty-seven. However, the May was lower by forty-four cents to close at ten forty-seven. Delaney, why don't you tell us who we're talking to for today's Tech Tuesday?
2: Well, you and I had a great conversation this morning with David Shan, who is the COO of Farm Together and also an ag grad 30 under 30. So let's turn it over to our conversation with David. Well, for today's Hashtag Tech Tuesday interview, I'm very excited about today's guest, David Chan, who is the COO and founding team member of Farm Together. He is also one of the Agrad 30 under 30. So that's how David and I were able to get connected. But David, so excited to have you joining us today on the podcast.
0: Thanks so much, Delaney. So happy to be here.
2: So David, before we get to the company that you are a founding team member for, let's talk about your background because just looking through your bio here on the Farm Together website, you have had an interesting path. So tell us how you got to where you are today.
0: Absolutely. Um, So it's funny how sometimes life comes full circle. My first job was actually on a farm. I grew up in the Hudson Valley, New York State. Uh, and at the age of twelve, I was a picker at the local apple orchard, um, and ag was something that was just always in my backyard. But I didn't really feel, um, you know, as if it were going to be my future career path because my family personally didn't farm, and um, you know, it just happened to be my first job. But then, fast forward, I go to college. Um, I went to Cornell, and I was in their ag school there, studying atmospheric science and meteorology, and. Uh, I started to get really interested in the different industries that both weather and uh, climate will impact. And um, agriculture was at the top of the list. Um, a huge, both a huge uh, source of emissions um, for greenhouse gas emissions, um, but also a, an industry or a sector that responds to um, a changing in climate, uh, and of course, short-term uh, changes in weather. And so I thought there was this really cool um, interconnectedness between agriculture, meteorology, and climate, and that launched me down the rabbit hole of trying to explore uh, what the nexus of, of these different uh, these different fields were. So after Cornell, um, I worked in finance for a bit uh, at an investment bank in New York City before uh, going back into ag and joining an early stage ag tech company called Grow Intelligence, which uh, is a data company bringing together USDA data, um, other governmental data, international government data, um, and then also uh, weather data, environmental data, um, to try to build a 360 picture of um, all of the different factors that impact agriculture. Um, Helped grow the team there, and then ultimately went to business school um, to receive my MBA. And I used business school as a, really a transformative experience to position myself as an ag investor. Um, had an internship with Prudential, working in farmland investing on the West Coast. Um, and after business school, I was working in uh, private investing at a firm called AmeriCapital before meeting Arta Milinchuk, the founder and CEO of Farm Together, and hearing more about his vision to make farmland investing more accessible. And um, just really, really loved the vision. I, I love the asset class. And it's something personally uh, that spoke to me because as a young investor, I wanted farmland in my personal portfolio, but um, didn't have the means to go out and and outright buy and contract a farm myself. And so um, it all made a lot of sense. And uh, I joined him on on the mission. And I guess the rest is history.
1: And David, that's a great segue into the Farm Together company. Uh, You mentioned you're trying to democratize the ownership of farmland and farmland investments. Tell us a little bit about what that means. How is Farm Together doing that?
0: Certainly, so all of this uh, has really been spurred by a piece of legislation called the JOBS Act, um, which was passed about eight years ago. Um, and the JOBS Act allows for crowdfunding for uh, alternative investments and uh, historically illiquid investments. So farmland falls into that category, um, real estate uh, and other types of asset class, uh, assets like those. Um, and so what we do is we'll go out and We'll find uh, a farming family or um, uh, a farmer who is looking to sell either their entire farm or a stake of their farm. and so often we see this in, in many uh, estate planning um, estate planning purposes where a farmer has several children and, and maybe let's say three kids, two of the kids um, you know either moved away or uh, want to liquidate their their position or uh, inheritance in the farm but one child still wants to either continue to own and operate or um, at the very least own. And so farmers will work with us to syndicate out, you know, a, a either majority interest. So the two thirds in that case or, or help sell their whole farm on our platform. And then the way it works on the investor side, you know, it's tough to find a, a an operating farm in the US that sells for much less than, you know, call it a million bucks. Um, and obviously that's a high hurdle for, for any individual to go in and purchase themselves. Um, and so what we do is, let's say we do find a million dollar property, um, we'll, we're able to divide that property up into um, $10,000 chunks. And so if you want to invest in that property, all you need is $10,000 and you'll receive a, a proportional interest. So uh, in that case, that would be a 1% um, uh, interest in the $1 million farm property. Uh, and then all future distributions, so be it rental income or operating income, you would receive your proportional share. And so, um, you know, if if that farm produced, uh, you know, again, keeping numbers simple, $100 in rental income, uh, you would then receive $1 of that $100 because you own 1% of the farm.
2: So David, walk me through a little bit more about how that relationship works with the farming family. Do they approach you? Are you approaching them? And how much interaction or say do you have in that farm if they're continuing to farm or maybe have a generation coming in to farm it? How involved are the stakeholders from the Farm Together partnership?
0: Certainly. So, you know, these can take on different um, shapes and forms. It really depends on uh, the situation and, and what the seller is hoping to accomplish. But um, we find, you know, we we find sellers both um, by farmers reaching out to us. They, um, we actually have a Sell Your Farmland page on our website uh, at www.farmtogether.com where growers can um, share a little bit of information about their property with us and, and we'll get back in touch with them shortly on, uh, you know, well, we'll always respond to it and if we can be helpful in any way, but we'll also see if we could potentially put that property on our platform um, for syndication and funding. Um, and in terms of operating, you know, again, it depends on the situation. If, um, if keeping the farm in, if the family has historically been a great operator and keeping the farm in the family's operation is something that's really important to the seller, then we will structure it, um, as a, a sale lease back where we'll make sure that, um, that, that family can continue operations. Um, we do have an operating agreement that we ask our tenants uh, to sign. Um, and we do wanna be cognizant of certain, uh, that certain variables uh, and certain factors are upheld. So, um, you know, looking at ESG or environmental, social and governance factors to ensure good stewardship of the land. But we really like these um, partial ownership relationships because um, whether or not ESG is in the operating agreement, if the family still owns a piece of the land, of course, they're going to be good stewards. Um, you know, incentives are, are well aligned. Uh, and so um, we've, we found many of these deals where our, um, our farming families that are selling a portion of their farm continue to own some interest in the farm to be the best deals um, because both the investors and the farmers are, are well aligned in keeping the property a healthy one.
1: So David, that kind of leads me to my next question. Farmland as an asset class is hugely diverse. A lot of our listeners are tend to be corn and soybean row crop cattle producers in the Midwest. We think of you know 640 acres and row crop production, cash rent, but you've got orchards, you've got feedlots, you've got all sorts of different facets. As we sit here in the midst of this COVID-19 shutdown and the turmoil in agriculture, which areas of agricultural farmland do you think look the brightest?
0: Sure, that's a great question. So we have historically um, done more of our deals in the permanent planting space. Not to say that we don't look at row crops, Uh, we actually do plan to have a row crop offering shortly, um, later this quarter, but um, most of our deals thus far have been in tree nuts, uh, so almonds, and in citrus, mandarins, uh, and navel oranges. Um, we've also are doing a hazelnut deal now, and, and we're in the midst of another hazelnut deal. Um, and we find that in those permanent commodities that where supply is, is limited just by sheer nature of the climate that's required to grow some of these commodities, um, you know, we can get comfortable with the fundamentals. And we've already seen, uh, such resiliency in some of these commodities against uh, headwinds. And so um, my favorite anecdote here is is actually the almond market. Long before 2019's uh, trade war and tariff situation, in in the summer of 2018, there were actually uh, tariffs imposed on US almonds uh, in trade with China. And so we had a full year essentially of, of data to see how did the market react. How did did exports react to this tariff before the broader tariffs were imposed? And China continued to import almonds, albeit at a a bit of a slower pace. I believe exports declined by maybe 18 or 20%. Um, But you also found uh, new homes for for California almonds. And so new markets opened up across uh, Asia Pacific. Domestic consumption in the US increased because we continue to find new products almond milk, um, almond-based skincare products. Um, and so the resiliency and the innovation that we're seeing in, across tree nuts and um, some citrus products has just been astounding. And it, it, it really forms a, a strong fundamental uh, floor for many of these commodities. And so I would say we continue to be very excited um, in tree nuts, in almonds, and hazelnuts, pecans, um, and across certain citrus commodities.
2: And David, as you look at the future of the agricultural industry and this type of Farm Together platform, land is an asset that they're not making any more of. And we've definitely seen kind of what I would call a land grab across not only United States, but internationally as well. Do you expect to see more consolidation and platforms such as Farm Together become a staple in the industry? Or do you think that you guys are just a niche space for now and have carved your niche out?
0: We, we think that platforms like ours are going to be necessary um, in order to keep farmland as farmland. And so uh, a stat that I find mind-blowing uh, is that the United States has lost twice the size of the state of Massachusetts in the past, I think 15, 15 no, no more than 20 years um, uh, worth of farmland. To you know, conversions to other uses for real estate, residential, commercial—you name it—and um, we think it's really important to preserve our farmland and to continue to be a large agricultural producer for um, public health. And I think COVID, as a background, as a backdrop, is a perfect example of why that's important um, for national security for for a whole host of reasons. And so I think platforms like Farm Together are going to be necessary. Um, to bring in the outside capital that's required as this huge wave of generational transfer happens in American farmland. The average age of the U.S. farmer today is approaching 60, and the USDA projects that 50 to 70 percent of all American farmland will trade hands over the course of the next two decades. If you think about it, that's just an incredible amount of just transactions that the... um, just the number of deals that are going to take place. And in acreage, that's about, I think, five, or five to 600 million acres of land. So um, we don't have the infrastructure today to support that volume of, of, of deal flow and transactions. And I think platforms like Farm Together are going to be absolutely essential in uh, allowing that transfer to happen and ensuring that we continue to be one of the top agricultural producers in the world.
1: So, David, if our listeners are curious about the Farm Together platform and what you guys are putting together, give us the website one more time so they can go and get more information.
0: Absolutely. Our website is www.farmtogether.com, and I can always be reached as well via email at david.farmtogether.com.
1: Fantastic. David, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Fascinating technology. Bring people together to democratize the ownership of farmland. Very, very cool. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us.
0: Thanks so much, Mike and Delaney. It was great being here.
2: All right. Well, again, a big thank you there to David for taking the time to chat with us. Interesting stuff. Interesting to think that this could be the new reality of the future that we live in.
1: Yeah. And, you know, from an investment standpoint, if we start getting more classes of people or more numbers of people into farmland investing, I've got to imagine that's going to have an inflationary effect on prices and push them higher. So there's going to be a lot to watch over the next couple of years as this kind of model becomes more prevalent in farm country, Delaney.
2: Absolutely. Well, we'll continue to watch it, but we're always continuing to watch the latest developments in agricultural news, not only through our podcast, but also on social media. You can connect with us at AgNewsDaily on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can find any of our past episodes at agnewsdaily.com. I will say quickly, too, it seems that some of you may be having issues with receiving the Monday, Market Monday episodes. If that is the case, go ahead and unsubscribe and resubscribe to our feed. And that should fix the issues for you. But I know we've had a few of our listeners reach out and say that their Market Monday episodes were not always working in their iTunes app. So I just wanted to give that quick shout out Weird, to you.
1: this the Monday episodes?
2: Yeah, isn't that the strangest thing? I don't understand technology sometimes, but that seems very odd to me.
1: That is very bizarre. Well, listeners, stick with us. We'll continue bringing you market news. And if you can't get it downloaded, you can always listen to it on the website by streaming. With that, Delaney Howell, should we let the listeners go?
2: Let's let them go.